So we begin, uh, we'll return to Ephesians chapter 5, and um, we will, um, for the new material today, be beginning in verse 3, but we'll back up a little bit as we open this morning. Um, If you are a born-again Christian today, God has given you a new heart. That is one of the descriptions in Scripture about what the new birth is. It's a new heart given to us. Um, He has raised you from spiritual death to spiritual life. That was Ephesians 2.1. And you hath he quickened, brought to life, who were dead in trespasses and sins. He's put a new nature within you. Um, In fact, you are a new creature. Uh, If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature, it says in 2 Corinthians 5.17. And that's why we refer to salvation as a new birth. It's a new life. It's not a uh, fixed old life. It's a new life. Um, Except a man be born again. He cannot see the kingdom of God, John 3.3. And while the old nature will ultimately be defeated, it is still with us today. And that old nature is with is what the Christian uh, wars with day in and day out. It's a battle. Um, <clears throat> Romans chapter seven talks a lot about that battle uh, with that Paul experience that he talked about the things I don't want to do I do and the things I should be doing I don't do. Um, he battles uh, with the old nature. As we got to the beginning of chapter five, we are asked or we are called to. Follow, be followers of God or imitators, mimickers of God and of Jesus Christ. Um, we are to mimic our God. Why? Well, we, we uh, saw in verse 1 last time and also in chapter 1 and verse 5, we do this because we are now the children of God. Uh, born again individuals are called the children of God. Um, And so they're the children of the sovereign God of the universe, and they should mimic their father. In fact, Romans 8.17 tells us that as children, we're actually heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Here's what it says. And if children, if we are children, which God has called us to, to, to be, if we are born again, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. So we are to be in, to, to err, to have a, um, we talked about Elasta access, and we'll talk about it again today, access to an inheritance that we can lay claim on it as an heir um, if we, again, have been born again, placed our faith and trust in Christ. In f- verse 2 of chapter 5, we ended by discussing self-sacrificial love, right, and walk in love as Christ also has has loved us and hath given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. We were given the perfect example of love, or self-sacrificial love, through the substitutionary death of Christ for his people. And that was greatly pleasing to the Father, right? It was a sweet-smelling savor. He enjoyed what the, he was happy to receive what Christ had done in sacrifice. So if we are to mimic um, God as our father, then there are traits we should follow. There are things we should do, but there's probably some things we shouldn't do, things God doesn't do that we shouldn't do. And that's really where we find ourselves as we move to verse 3 and up through verse, our section this morning is verses 3 through 7. And while the sins of saved individuals are covered by the blood of Christ, they should not be taken lightly. Um, 
Remember that salvation is not a license to sin, but it's rather a call to renounce that part of us that was killed by the work of Christ. That's how Romans chapter 6 opened. Um, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? So we should not, uh, salvation is not a license to sin. It is a call to put away sin, just like we've seen about putting off the old man in chapter 4 and putting on the new here in our study in Ephesians. So today we're going to review just how serious we are to take sin. And while he takes all sin seriously, that's not that God only says some sins are bad and others are not so bad, um, the fo- primary focus of this this section of the letter of, to the Ephesians um, uh, actually involves sin that are somewhat and generally of a sexual nature. And so we'll um, be uh, uh, careful on how we go through this, but just so you're aware, um, that's what we're going to be dealing with um, in terms of sinful acts. So our first heading this morning is the seriousness of sinful acts. And the first thing I want to draw your, your attention to is how serious sin is in the eyes of God. And to do that, I'm going to draw, take a look here at verses 3 and 5, and you're going to see a parallel. There are three types of sin described. It says in verse 3, fornication, but fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness. Those three things, let it not be named once among you as becometh saints. And then in verse 5, you'll see that for this you know that no whoremonger, one unclean person to covetous man, three, who is an idolater, hath any inheritance in the kingdom of God. So there's a parallel between fornication and whoremonger, uh, between uncleanness and unclean person, and covetousness nor covetous man. Um, in fact, the Greek word for fornication is, is, is the exact same word that's used for whoremonger, except for it's attached to a person. So it might be easier for you to see that word as fornicator, like a person who does that. Um, so just be aware. So there is a parallel there um, that we're going to see and, and or we're going to describe here. But how, how serious are these things? Well, we saw that in verse 3. Let it not be named once among you. The Bible tells us elsewhere in 1 John that, that we, if we say we don't sin, or we essentially lie to God because everyone, even after salvation, commits sin. But Paul is telling the Ephesians, these sins, don't let them be named once among you. Um, you might sin again. You will sin again in this life. But these sins, don't let them be something that you are caught doing. Um, what about verse 5? What does it say about them? If you, if you are one of these persons who is equivalent with an idolater, and we'll get to that term later, if you're if, that no one that does these things hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Ooh, well, we just said that if we are a child of God, we are, we do have an inheritance. So what does this mean? So first off, not only should we not do these things, if we have a habit of doing these things still, it's an indication that we are not true children of God. It's not that we can lose our inheritance. Oh, you've done these things. You've lost your inheritance now. In fact, the the fact is, by doing these things without repentance, we demonstrate that we never were children of God. 
we never had the inheritance, even if we might think we did. Um, this is a fruit, not doing these things as a habit of life, as a fruit of being born again. Looking ahead to verse 6, <clears throat> we see uh, that what these things bring upon us is the wrath of God. Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. So don't let anyone tell you that these aren't a big deal, uh, because you will face the wrath of God because of them. Now, remember, we've been saying in our study on Ephesians that the book of Colossians is very similar. It's like a parallel letter. Here's what here's here's the same kind of section in in the book of Colossians, which is Colossians three, five, and six. And just you can hear it here. It says, "Mortify or kill." Therefore, your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry, for which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. It's the same, a very similar list. The same three things are in it. And what is the result of that? It is wrath, wrath of God. So, what's wrath of God look like? Um, is it like we cannot take the wrath of God lightly. Um, It's promised to everyone that has not placed their full faith and trust in Christ Jesus, making him their ultimate treasure and the Lord of their lives. John 3.36 says, He that believeth on the Son, Jesus, hath everlasting life. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. And that's not looking ahead. That's not saying that, well, someday, if they don't turn around, the wrath of God's going to get them. It's no, the wrath of God is over them now. Um, And uh, that's not something to take lightly. Um, It's not something to say, well, I'm going to wait and see. I'm going to call on the Lord someday, but not today. Um, Because God's wrath's not really an easy topic to consider. (laughs) Um, It shouldn't be. in fact, we have a, a kind of sobering picture of his, of his wrath in Revelation 14. And so let's go there for a minute. It's page uh, 1737 in the Pew Bible. We're going to go to Revelation 1417, final book of the Bible. <clears throat> I'm just going to read um, this section from verse uh, 17 down to verse 20. And another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, which had the power over fire. And he cried and and cried with a loud cry to him that had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in thy sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden without the city, and blood came out of the winepress, even unto the horse bridles, by a space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. That's a lot of blood. Um, And it comes from the wrath of God being poured out on unbelievers. This wrath upon unbelievers is is part of God's final judgment um, that will end the final battle of Armageddon. 
Um, and of course, our goal today is not to recount everything in the book of Revelation. That's an entire couple-year study in and of itself. Uh, but it is to recognize that the wrath of God is serious. The wrath of God is awful. The wrath of God is without repentance at the end. It will be completed because God is righteous and holy, and he must judge sin. And those who are unrepentant um, face his eternal judgment. And so let's go back now to Ephesians 5. There we go. Oh, that we would not trifle with the wrath of God, not as unbelievers saying, well, someday maybe, or not as Christians saying, well, I'm saved. I don't have to worry about it anymore. Um, We must all, by all means, seek refuge in the Son, in Christ Jesus, and his saving work. The wrath of God comes upon those who do not value God and his son above all things in the world, who elevate things of inferior value and seek their security in them. So let's look now at some of the things, acts, sins that would warrant the wrath of God. So we move into verse um, three, fornication, fornication. This is a broad term that essentially describes sexual sin, and we might call it today just sexual immorality. Um, this might commonly, more more commonly, this might refer to um, sexual relation before marriage or adulterous relationships after marriage has happened. Um, and again, remember that term in verse five that says "whoremonger." That's like the same thing as fornication, except for put into a person who does those things. Um, and, uh, they come from the same root, root term in the Greek. Um, and fornication essentially captures the case of, of men and women who fulfill their lusts outside of the design of God. So that is a, that's a fairly straightforward one. What about uncleanness? Um, which is the next one and all uncleanness. Well, something that is not clean is dirty. Um, and that isn't physical impurity. It's not talking about you've got dirty hands or uh, um, something like that. It's uh, moral impurity. In fact, the Greek can have the sense of incontinence, which would mean lack of self-control and impure desires and passions. And so, okay, how, how can I re- relate that then? Where does that fit in here? Let me read again that verse in Colossians that's parallel to this one. Because I think the primary context here uh, continues, is going to deal with sexual uncleanness. Um, it says in Colossians 3, 5, mortify, so put to death, therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So we move beyond um, like the ideas of adultery or, or um Um, premarital sexual relations, we must remain sexually pure, something the Apostle Paul frequently reminds his readers. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 tells us, this is the will of God, even your sanctification. So he says, God's will is that you'll be set apart, will become more holy. How do I do that? That you should abstain from fornication. So, okay, so he actually calls out that one area first. It's actually a frequent thing that he calls out in his letters because it was a frequent problem in these churches. 
One uh, additional thing to add is if we review the companion list like we did there in Colossians 3.5, that term inordinate affection, it's actually the same term that we find in Romans 1 that describes homosexual behavior. Um, And so I think it is uh, correct to include that idea as to what we're seeing here in Ephesians 5. So um, not pleasant topics, but sexual sins, including adultery and homosexuality, are not sins that become saints, right? Uh, don't do these things as becometh saints. That's the, don't let it be named among you because it, that doesn't, that's not fitting for a saint. Now you say, well, can a person that does those things be saved? Of course they can. Of course they can. Listen to this from 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? So he's reminding them of sinful things. Be not deceived, neither fornicators. And notice there'll be a a, um, uh, repetition of some of the things we've seen here in Ephesians. Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. Those people do not inherit the kingdom of God. And he says then, and such were some of you, but ye are washed, ye are sanctified, ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. So that that's, those sins can be cleaned. But if they are, what it's, what it's saying is that these sins aren't going to continue if you become born again. You are going to stop those things because you will be changed. You will have a new heart that will not desire those things or will desire God over those things. And so you can indeed be saved. There is no um, sin of that variety that puts you beyond the saving work of God. But here I was reminding these, but this is not something that should be named among you. What about, let's continue back in our list here. Fornication, uncleanness, covetousness. In fact, it's all, this this Greek word's always translated covetous in the King James, except for one spot, which was back in uh, chapter 4 and verse 19, which may be over the page or two to the left there, where it is, is translated greediness. To work all uncleanness with greediness. And you see, um, there's a, it's a broader use in that, in that place, but, um, Webster's dictionary defines covetousness as to desire inordinately, to desire that which is unlawful to obtain or possess in a bad sense. There is a good sense of coveting, um, uh, but we're focused here on the bad sense because that's the context here in, uh, Ephesians chapter five. So, to desire inordinately. Now we know that God does not like covetousness. It was included in uh, the end of the Ten Commandments. Exodus twenty seventeen: Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. <laughs> As I say that, I'm reminded of... We put that to tune when I was in school as a kid. We used to sing the Ten Commandments, but I, was, I won't say, I'll spare you. Um, <clears throat> uh, especially since it's a list of bad things. Um, but you could remember it. Um, so coveting is not good, right? God's, it's in the Ten Commandments. Don't do this. Now, that list in Exodus is, is more than, in, it's a broad list of coveting. 
um, all types of covetous or covetousness that are bad are mentioned in that list. That's that's all sinful. Um, but again, recalling the context, I think of verse three and and think bringing in what we know from is is also being said in Colossians. Um, we see coveting here in a sexual sense, rather than a sinful act. However, covetousness reveals what is behind the acts we have seen, right? Because it's 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 kind of the motive behind things. In fact, let's um, the Greek word definition. Uh, I'm not going to read the, the words; so I'll stumble over pronouncing. But it said, but it may it may be the root to which these sins grow, the longing of the creature which has forsaken God to f- fulfill itself with the lower objects of nature. The root from which these sins grow, the longing of the creature which has forsaken God to fill itself with the lower objects of nature. And I think that gives us a key insight into what we need to examine. So how do we characterize these sins overall? And verse 5 here will give us more uh, insight. After describing the, the, the types of people, whoremonger, unclean person, covetous man, we are told that that individual is an idolater an idolater. So someone that's, that's facing the sins, and we'll get to the sins um, described in verse four in a little bit, but Webster says an idolater is one who worships a deity that's not God, any deity that is not God. And so you might say, well, what is the deity that the fornicator, the unclean person, and the covetous man worship? Who is the center of their universe? And that deity that that person serves is powerful in all of us. The deity that is served in sexual sin is the deity of self. Um, remember that every one of us is to be, is made to be is first made in the image of God, and then we're made and we're created to bring Him glory, to declare the glory of our Maker. Isaiah forty three seven, which we've covered in our Bible studies, every one that is called by my name, for I have created him for my glory. I have formed him, yea, I have made him. God has created every one of us for his glory. But in our natural state, we place ourselves at the center of the universe rather than God. We seek our pleasure over his glory. And that's why these sins must not be named once among us. When we fall into serving our own passions, we neglect the first and great commandment. Remember, Christ said what that was in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And so that is the center. That should be the center of the universe. God should be, not self. It's not thou shalt love thyself with all thy heart. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God. So that is the seriousness of sinful acts. Let's look at verse 4 now and, and consider the seriousness of sinful words. Let me just read it first. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. So it's maybe a little surprising. In the middle of this like sandwich here, you've got verse 3 and 5 that are describing these sexual sins. He talks a little bit about like what we say, like what's coming out of our mouths. Um, how does this relate? Like how... And 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 remember, all of this is is the, the motive was a heart of covetousness. How does this relate? 
And again, just like the acts of verse three were not to be named, the acts of verse or the the yeah the acts of verse uh, uh, four are not convenient. Um, it's an old English way of saying they're not fitting. They, they, they're not. It just doesn't fit with being a Christian. You shouldn't do these things. They're not. They're not right. Um, and so let's look briefly at each of these terms. Um, which, interestingly, uh, if you were to filthiness, foolish talking, and jesting, those three words in the Greek only appear in this verse in the Bible. Um, and so this is a unique spot. Um, Filthiness refers to just obscene talk. Um, there's a similar term in, in Colossians where it says filthy communication. And here, filthiness, obscene talk. Say, well, how do I, I'm, I'm, what, what is filthy communication, filthiness? Where do we see that elsewhere? Um, well, it's actually referred to um, when Lot was delivered from Sodom and Gomorrah by a merciful God who then judged Sodom and Gomorrah for their sinfulness and in particular their homosexual acts, which um, this is what Peter said in 2 Peter 2, 7. God and, he, and delivered just Lot, vexed. So God, Lot was vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. So it's the same idea, the filthy uh, obscene. It's it's not something that should be that that's their lifestyle. This what we're seeing back in in, in Ephesians is actually speaking on these things. But that's the idea of filthy. Um, we should not not only should we not sin in the acts described in verse three and back in Ephesians five. We should not talk about them, um, joke about them, which we'll get to in a minute. We, that they should not be our normal conversation. Well, what about the next one, foolish talking. Oh, if we literally take the Greek there, it is the words of a moron. We don't want to use the words of a moron. <laughs> talking that shows that you are foolish. Empty conversation whose language will give away that you are not speaking intelligently or with, with wisdom. Have you ever listened to someone and they start saying some things? You're like, this person is not filled with wisdom. Or have that ever been you? And you say, boy, that probably didn't sound that smart. Um, like, for example, is it true? Um, might it be that if you listen to someone, um, I've heard this occasionally, at, uh, you know, in other places, that if you listen to someone whose every third word is a swear, they start to sound foolish. It start, starts to not be like, oh, that's, this just sounds foolish. Um, why is that? Why does it sound foolish to, to use, say, the Lord's name in vain or to speak very crudely in that way? Well, the Bible teaches that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And that's what Psalm, 11, Psalm 111 verse 10, that's a lot of ones, uh, um, says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So when we talk without a fear of the Lord, we move in the, in the opposite direction. We move in the domain of foolishness, right? If you're, if you're not talking, if you're talking and said, I don't have any fear of the Lord. I have no fear of the Lord. I'm just going to take his name in vain. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to speak crudely. I'm not worried about his wrath. I don't believe he's there. That naturally leads you to foolish talk because wisdom is found in a fear of the Lord. And we have the same theme as we continue to our final um, act, um, words in verse four, jesting, 
Jesting is like a coarse joker. Do we tell crude jokes? And again, while this entire context relates to the speech of, uh, relates to actions of surrounding sexual impurity, which unfortunately comprises much of what crude jokes center on, um, we know that crude jokes can obviously move to other topics as well. Um, so why is it here? Why is it in the middle of these, it's kind of the sandwich of the, the, the acts and then, then words in the middle? And I think one thing that we could say is that filthy talk is one step towards filthy action. Um, Paul begins with the sinful acts to which his reader may respond, I've never done that. That's terrible. Um, and Paul anticipates that. And then he casts a wider net and he says, well, what about talking about these things? Is it is it already a step down that path? That's just like Christ telling his disciples that it's not, it, well, adultery is a sin, so is thinking in a lustful way towards someone who's not your spouse without the act is the same. You're still uh, guilty of the same thing. So you're moving in that direction. They come from the same heart. And so let's consider the heart more closely as we come to the remedy now for the sinful actions and sinful words. And so our third heading this morning is getting to the heart of the matter. And the key for that in this section, the key little bit of goodness that we see in the middle is at the end of verse 4, right? Neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather the giving of thanks. Rather than having filthiness and crude jokes come from our mouths, the apostle exhorts us to give thanks. Doesn't that sound a little odd? First, it did to me. Um, you might think that after saying, don't talk filthily, don't be crude, say good things, say holy things, say right things, do holy deeds instead of sinful deeds. But he goes deeper with an analysis of our condition when he calls us to be thankful. He calls on us to give thanks. He moves from the actions and words that flow out of the heart to the heart itself. Interestingly, if you look at the end of that same parallel section in Colossians chapter 3, we see the same concept. And this is in verse uh, Colossians 3, 14 and 15. And above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also ye are called in one body, and be ye thankful. So, to see this concept of thanksgiving and why it's important, let's turn for a moment to Romans 1, which is page 1581. And uh, just, uh, yeah, let's turn to Romans 1. Um, and we'll be in verse uh, 21. Um, but before I read it, Remember the second half of Romans 1, the Apostle Paul documents kind of this downward slide of people that refuse the truth of God. The creation magnifies God, right? The heavens declare the glory of God, um, Psalm 19.1. And Romans says that people, because of this, um, verse uh, 20 um, they can, we can see those things so that at the end of verse 20, we are out ex, without excuse, 
So there is no excuse. No one can say, God, I did, just didn't know. It's like, I showed you that I existed by my creation. In fact, instead, what unbelievers do in verse 18 is that rather than acknowledging the truth, it says here that they hold or uh, suppress the truth and unrighteousness. The unbelieving heart knows there's a God, but essentially takes that truth, puts it in a box and sits on it. It says, no, I'm not going to acknowledge that that's truth. But moving to verse 21, rather than giving God glory, which would be to fulfill their God-given design, they refuse and rather retreat to a position where their imagination thinks up empty things that come from a hardened heart. So let's look at that verse, verse 21. Because that, when they knew not God, they glorified him not as God, so they did not do what they are created for, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened. So parallel with not glorifying God when they knew about him is that they were not thankful. Not thankful. The creation around us should inspire awe. We don't build planetariums and telescopes to be bored. We like scenic drives and amazing natural formations on the planet. And we consider all that exists in the universe and see how small we are. Just tiny specks in the middle of a vast universe. And that first should direct our hearts to say, there is a God a first cause for everything we see. Then, recognizing this, we should burst forth in thanksgiving, right? Thank you for life. Thank you for putting me here. Thank you for creating me. Um, Thank you for declaring your glory to me in all of these amazing ways. I see there's a God. I want to thank you for showing yourself to me through your creation. Being thankful to God is part of his will for our lives. Um, Just like declaring his glory, right? We said in Isaiah 43, 6 and 7, our purpose in the world is to give glory to God. But 1 Thessalonians 5, 18 says, in everything, give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. He wants you to be thankful. But the natural man, the unbeliever, the unbelieving heart, the hard heart does not do that. And while it seems fitting for created beings to be thankful for the one who created them, that's not what the fallen heart of man does. If we're still in Romans, down in verse 23, we get more insight. And change the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man, into birds, and to four-footed beasts and creeping things. And the key there... When you see the word changed in verse 23, changed the glory of God, um, it's the same meaning as exchanged. It's uh, what the the Greek word means. And um, listen to a message on the same general area of scripture by um, Pastor John Piper and got a bit of insight here that guided me a little bit. Um, It says there's an exchange, right? There's an exchange here that happens in the depraved heart of man. It dethrones God. They glorified him not as God, um, back in verse 21. And they they exchanged the glory of the uncorruptible God, took him out. And then it enthrones, puts on the throne, an image made like to corruptible man, puts man in his place. 
in God's place. If all the blessings in this world were from God, we'd have a good reason to be thankful. If we dethrone God and enthrone humanity, or like evolution, natural processes, chance, we're no longer thankful to God for the good things that come into our lives. We're either thinking they're accidents, or we thank other people, or more frequently we thank ourselves, recognizing how much we have done. Look what I have done. I have earned it. This is mine. And that exchange reminds us of the fall of Lucifer, um, who we think of as Satan. Um, He was created as the highest of the angelic host. Um, He was no longer thankful to the God who created him. He created him again as the highest and most glorious angel. But he desired instead, rather than being thankful, wow, thank you, Lord, for making me so just tremendous. Thank you for this awesome creation. Here is what Isaiah 14, 12 says. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut to the ground, which did weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north, and I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. So that's an exchange. He was going to put himself there instead of God. And this is what uh, Piper calls that we need is a Copernican revolution. We need the right thing to be at the center of our universe. In our fallen state, we've taken God out of his rightful position as the center of all things and put ourselves there. And when God changes our hearts in the new birth, we are taken out of the center and God returns to his rightful location. Everything then in our lives revolves around him rather than revolving around ourselves. When God returns to the center, everything in our lives, both blessings and challenges then can be approached with a heart of gratitude. That's how you can say in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, in everything give give thanks. Because Paul didn't say, well, just be thankful about the good stuff, but the bad stuff you should be thankful for. That's, you know, that it should be complain to God about the bad stuff. He didn't say that. He says, be thankful for everything. Can we be thankful for everything? Even the challenges and the hard times, even the disappointments in this life? As Christians, yes, indeed. Because Romans 8.28 reminds us, and we know that all things... All things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. And so there's good in it. There's good in the bad. There's good in the chastisement of God. There's good in everything. We can be thankful in all things. So as we move to apply this section of scripture to our lives, there's something of utmost importance that we must recognize. Perhaps we say, you know what? I'm not guilty of any of these sinful acts or words. Those are terrible things. I would never even consider them. And that may lead you to believe that these verses don't apply to you in any particular way other than, well, that's just something I should never do. But the key in the middle of those verses back, if I go back to Ephesians 5, Do you have a reason to be thankful this morning? If someone is thankful to God, putting God at the center of their universe, where did that come from? How did they do that? Why do they do that? 
And the only way this can occur is through the new birth that we studied back in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It is a gift of the grace of God. The Christian's thankfulness goes deeper than looking at creation and being thankful that we exist, right? That, that, that's nice, but it goes deeper than that. It's a thanksgiving to God for giving us a taste for him, a desire for him and his glory, a desire to see him at the center of the universe. God, I want you to be there because I know you are more valuable than me. I want you at the center and I want the things in my life to rotate around you, not around me. That's what he gives us. That's what the new heart gives us. Remember, Paul is talking to the Ephesian believers, asking them to put off these old lustful activities. Why? Because something else, something amazing has been purchased for them by Christ. What, did, what was purchased for them? Not just salvation here, but the ability to be thankful in the right way to the right source, which is God. Christ purchased our ability to be thankful in the right way to the right source, which is God. So our first question then has to be, do, have we trusted Christ today as our supreme treasure? Is he the most valuable to us? More than simply believing with your mind that Christ existed, died, and was raised. Why? Because Satan believes that Christ died, was buried, was raised from the dead. He believes those things. But does he love him above all else? Does he treasure Christ above all else? No, he does not. He wants to be in his place. What does he ask us to do? Believe those things, yes, in our heads. But that he did those things for us, that Christ died for us and was raised for us, and that we trust that for our only hope to avoid what we talked about earlier, which was the wrath of God. Now, for Christians today... The question becomes, are we thankful people? Philippians 2.14 tells us to do all things without murmurings or disputings. Don't grumble. We're not supposed to grumble. Well, it's a good way to not grumble. Be thankful. If we're, not, if we're thankful, we tend to be less grumbling. Do we thank God for his son and salvation? Recognizing that even to thank him for that is a gift from him. Now, Back to the theme of the section, sexual temptation does not vanish when one becomes a Christian. Neither is the temptation to use empty words or to tell a crude joke. It's especially true in a society today where all you have to do is flip on the television and it just comes right at you. And every single thing you hear, every song on the radio, it pushes on you in all directions. So what happens? If we're not careful, self will occasionally try to move back to the center of the universe and may seek we may seek to please it rather than God. How do we combat that? What's a what's in our what can we use in our arsenal to stop that that switch from happening? Be thankful. <laughs> we stop and express gratitude. It's it, it's a thanksgiving to God has this like it's like a break, right? On self it's a humbling thing. If you're thanking someone else for something, You didn't do it. It wasn't of you. It was of someone else. And in this case, it's of God. It's a humbling thing. It pulls ourself out of the center and says, God, you belong there. Thank you. So there's a place in our prayer 
in our Bible study to just stop and be thankful to God. To put him in the place that he rightfully belongs in the center of our universe. And so can we do this today and press forward towards a life of pure words and pure actions that come out of pure motives? Um, And we know that with God's help, we can. Let's pray.